This is our Suburb Trends Report for June 2023. We'll be looking at what property investors need to know when they're looking at investing across the country. And in this episode, we'll be discussing some important new metrics when it comes to affordability. Welcome to The Elephant in the Room. This is the podcast where we love to talk about the big things in property that never usually get talked about. I'm Veronica Morgan, real estate agent, buyer's agent and buyer's agent mentor, co-host of Foxtel's Location, Location, Location Australia, author of Auction Ready and co-host of Your First Home Buyer Guide. And I'm Chris Bates, mortgage broker, recently ranked number five in Australia out of over 18,000 brokers in the annual MPA Top 100 Mortgage Broker Award. Before we get started, I need to let you know that nothing we say here can be taken as personal advice. We always recommend you engage the services of an appropriate and experienced professional. This month, we've asked Kent to reveal some of the little projects he's been working on around affordability in his suburb selection criteria. So we're really keen to find out what little, you know, what little tidbits and exciting things you're about to share with us. Kent, what the hell have you been up to? And do you want to just, I guess, give us a brief overview of, of the types of things you've been discovering? Yes, there's been a number of metrics I've used in recent years and a lot's changed uh, in the last 20 years. Interest rates went up, cost of living's going up, and things like AI and chat GPT are emerging. So there's a whole new range of things that we need to now consider, or I certainly think uh, are worth considering. Um, so I'm starting to look more closely uh, at the jobs market. Now, you know, unemployment rate on average still is good, but there's a number of markets that we're seeing uh, unemployment just tick up a fair bit. And, and you might be surprised at some of those locations. Uh, one of the other key things that I, I can see looming is the, the impact of uh, AI. And a lot of companies in the US have been shedding up to 30% of their staff. So I'm looking at that saying, well, that wave will hit us as well. I think there's a lot more early adoption happening in the US, but it will hit, hit us. And we've got a lot of uh, ABS data that tells us different employment categories. So I'm starting to look at the suburbs that are you know, likely to be impacted by uh, the potential uh, of AI taking jobs and split that down to a vulnerable suburbs list. Now, I'm not covering that today because I'm still working on but that's an example of some of the data I'm looking at. And what, the other main thing or the main key theme for today is to look at affordability. Now, what this is not a new measure. This is old, but uh, a, a company called Demographia have been measuring affordability for quite some time. And one of the key measures for rents is 30% of household income. So if you're spending more than that 30% of household income, it's not not uh, affordable. Below 30%, it's affordable. And uh, the catalyst for me to start to look at it, I did start to see some slight changes in the market dynamics once they hit around 35%. Um, there's a lag in the time, but Typically, what we're seeing now is if you were to split, let's pick on Sydney for a minute. If you were to split Sydney into the suburbs that were unaffordable and affordable, there is a difference on average uh, of, in terms of vacancy rates, of 0.2. So, you know, it, that's a significant difference. So the average is quite large between the two. Quick question for you here, Kent. Yes. So basically... When, we, when you say you're doubling down on affordability and your suburb selection criteria, you're not so much saying, okay, where are the affordable locations and investors should be targeting? What you're saying is what are the unaffordable areas where properties are, are on the verge of becoming too expensive to either rent or purchase based on the type, the demographic of the person living there or, or potential changes to the employment status of a, a large chunk of that demographic. Um, and so they're the danger zones. Is that basically what we're talking about here? It really is. So there's there's two sides to the same coin. There's opportunities, and I believe the better opportunities are those areas where uh, employment is stable, obviously, but also where it's affordable. And the reason why I like the affordability metric of rents is that it gives you room, at, if you're an investor, for example, uh, it would mean that you, your market is more sta stable. So my assumption there is vacancy rates will be a lot more manageable, a lot more stable as a result of rents being more affordable. So I think that's a, a really important measure Then I'm using that now. The flip side of that is obviously if, if vacancy rates creep up as a result of it being uh, unaffordable, 
um, you'll find that that increases your risk as an investor. The other metric of affordability or measure, sorry, you want to jump in? Uh, yeah, I just also just want to, because the word affordability can be used and misused, and that's, that's why I want to get really clear on what we're talking about here, because a lot of people go to affordable locations to invest in because they're priced out of whatever, you know, area they've been trying to invest in. So they're looking at property prices and, you know, how many bedrooms, bathrooms, car parks you get for your money as an affordable metric. You're not talking about that. I just want to really just get that really front and centre before we launch into this whole conversation because because I've always said affordability and investment in the same sentence is a very dangerous thing, right? Because chasing affordability often means chasing poor quality assets. But what you're talking about is the ability of the people who live there to pay the rent, to buy property, you know, in that sense. And that's really the, the fuel underneath an area, right? That sustainability of property prices and rents in areas is that, that type of affordability, correct? Yeah, I think a lot of people confuse price with it. It's, it's more than that. It's it's a ratio. So with the income, though, for the people in the suburb renting, how are you able to get their income right rather than just aggregate income for the suburb? Because you're going to mix that with people who own in the suburb. But then also people who own in the suburb, that's really hard data because people bought in the suburb maybe 10, 20 years ago, right? So they could afford it 10 years ago. They bought in that suburb, but so what their income is, and they might be retired, or they so you know I, they can't afford to buy in the suburb today, but they could afford. And so the rental incomes of the people renting in the suburb, how do you get that data? Look, it, it's it's a really solid point, and it's one that I was only talking about an hour ago with somebody. It's it's a distribution, just like we talk about price distribution, and the median just represents that middle value. If you look at the shape of a suburb, we talk about the beachside suburbs all the time, and it's often you know two or three submarkets in in one suburb. Um, the beauty of the beauty of the census data is it splits down to a, a smaller neighbourhood. They call it a statistical area one. I'm going to call it an SA one. So you've got a couple of hundred houses, and you do have a distribution of income down at that SA one level. So you can look at that. You can look at how spread the demographics are, and you've got a range of things, but. Chris, your point is absolutely correct. It's it's a middle value. So that household income level is a middle value. It's a relative value, and it's going to be it's going to be wrong at certain ends of the spectrum. Absolutely, but as a, a measure, a, a relative measure, uh, when when the assumptions hold, uh, it's it's a good metric. It's a very solid metric. But your point is the the point is correct that you've got a lot of people who. Uh, have got small mortgages who who it doesn't matter that their their, their salaries might be relatively lower. You've got a lot of people who own their house outright, um, who might be on a pension, etc. If we could nut, net those people out of the statistics, it would be much cleaner. Absolutely, um, but we don't we don't have access to that level of data. Yeah, we had a conversation with uh, PK. I'm not sure if it'll be live by this, and we had a good conversation around income growth and. You know, what's so hard to measure is income growth in a suburb because what we really want to know is the people buying in the market today, the people actually taking on mortgages, et cetera, what are their incomes, right? What are they earning? Because they're the ones who are paying the mortgages on current prices. You know, the people who bought in a suburb 10 years ago, it doesn't really matter what they earn because they've got mortgages for 10 years ago based on what they paid and they probably paid it off and they... Um, and so it's really those current buyers in the market and that 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 is the future income growth. It's very slow as well because, you know, only 5% of properties, let's say, transact. You know, it's not going to push the median up very fast, right? But over maybe 10 or 20 years, absolutely, people the suburbs gentrify and things change. But so it's really hard to look at incomes, right, in a suburb. It's really hard to get that data. Is that sort of your observation, Ken? Hard for us, but not hard for a mortgage insurer or a large big four bank um, because they're processing literally hundreds, yeah, if not thousands of these mortgages every day. Um, and we had access to that. So, you know, that is a valid point, and we would look at those me me measures. We had enough in our samples back in the mortgage insurance days to actually know exactly what you know LVRs on average were, et cetera, what, what incomes were, uh, you know, the average typical income and loan serviceability probably most importantly as the key metric. Um, so, you know, uh, yes, and uh, so they're, they're valid measures, but I don't have access to that. I've only got access to some of these kind of public-facing data sets, et cetera, and some aggregates that are at a median. 
Um, so with all that put to one side, there are still some really important call outs here is, you know, when, when we get to a point where uh, suburbs on average uh, are consuming too much uh, in terms of rents, too much household income being allocated rent, that has an impact. Uh, and when we, with, with measuring house prices or purchase affordability, uh, the best I've got is just drawing a line and saying how many years of household income it would take to cover uh, the median price of a house. Um, and you know, with, with all its faults as a measurement system, it's a good relative measure to compare regions and it's a good relative measure to compare time. So you've got two ways to slice and dice that data. And, um, you know, it's quite a concern because um, you've got some areas that are, have an abundance of suburbs that have houses for seven or eight years or lower. And typically the demographic, demographia um, uh, research, they were classifying extremely unaffordable as nine years plus. And boy, have we got a lot of suburbs that are nine years plus. Yeah. And you know what you're saying about rents and PIP, you know, basically getting into the unaffordable space. Obviously, we it's well known we've got a rental crisis in this country um, and rents have been rising at a faster rate than ever before. There comes a tipping point, doesn't there? There comes a point where it's just not sustainable. And so what I'm finding, I've had two conversations in, within the last week. Now, we are recording this. We will go to, to air quite a few weeks after um, we record this, so things got to change. But I was speaking to Sydney property manager and also an Adelaide-based property manager. Just coincidentally, the Sydney-based property manager said to me, look, you know, we all the headlines are saying how rents are rising, there's massive competition for rental properties, blah, 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 massive rental shortage. And yet I'm talking to other property managers that I know and we're all finding the same thing. It's taking longer to rent things out. It's taking longer. Our days on market, the days, you know, to get a, a tenant uh, blowing out. I just exactly coincidentally with a uh, Adelaide based property manager said exactly the same thing. And so these are the, you know, these are the canary in the coal mine effectively. These are the early signs that that's something's got to give, right? And so you can't just keep pushing. I mean, rents are a function of income more directly than in house prices because there's other, fa other factors that play into that. But also you've got rising cost of living. Um, so there's, there's, ultimately going to be a constraint to what people can pay for rents, right? So it seems to be it's playing out. And I'm wondering how long before we start seeing this in the data. Yeah, well, um, I tracked lease days on market, but I didn't prepare. Um, so I haven't got a top of mind, but I will That's have a right. deep... We're just having a conversation as we do. <laughs> <laughs> so I will have a bit of a deep dive into that. But definitely the affordability has a, a, a weak but interesting correlation happening with vacancy rates, without a doubt. So... You know, as they start to go up, that's a bit of a concern. Yeah, sorry, but you, you, we had a little bit of delay here, but that's what you sort of said before. You said that at the higher end where it's more unaffordable, we start, you're starting to see that vacancy rates push out. So, so we're already seeing in the data what anecdotally some people are, are experiencing on the ground. So this is quite interesting. Um, yeah. I just think that's quite a fascinating um, Can't get blood from a stone, here. right? Yeah, we got it's a problem. So it's, you know, it's a societal problem. Um, you know, it, it, there's health issues. You know, we get to a point where, where households are under this much stress. Uh, the flow-on effects are pretty significant. You know, mental health problems, physical health problems, a whole range of issues. But the, fundamentally, though, you don't have to legislate to re reduce or restrict rental increases because this is just showing the market will do it. Market forces ultimately, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a, it's only elastic to a certain point. So it's just, I just find this very interesting. That's all. <laughs> <clears throat> well, look, we, we've got a, the, the sleeper for me is that we've got this short term potential risk of companies saying we can shed a significant per percentage of our workforce because of AI. And it's happening now in the US. And, I'm yet to see it flow on here at any scale, but it may only be a matter of time. And when we look at some of these uh, workforce categories, the white collar categories that we'd almost going to say, you know, go to university, get yourself a profession, safe job, high income. It's almost that's that's the the first line of 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 market or you know employment category that's at threat. 
So it's going to be very, very interesting because these are the people with that are located in some of these suburbs that have the most mortgage stress or have the least affordability. So this is probably a bit of a standout and it's a sleeper at the moment, but I can see this thing coming. It's a bit of a freight train on its way. So I'm starting to watch unemployment data. At the moment, the unemployment data is telling me nothing of interest. There's a, yes, there's a handful of SA2s that only just came out today, literally five minutes before this podcast. Um, there are a number of areas where uh, employment's creeping up, but it's marginal. But then when you start to filter out and look at those with a 5% unemployment rate or higher and rising, um, there are a few, but it's not an alarming issue at this point in time. But you know, we may well be, we may be having a very different discussion about unemployment rates in six months' time. And then we start to overlay that with some of these other issues that we're highlighting. So we start to talk about areas that aren't affordable. Um, that problem that we saw as a result of those non-commutable lifestyle locations, I think we spoke about it last show or before, where we go up to the Richmond Tweed and we go down the south coast in New South Wales, we go to the surf coast. These were areas that were the price growth and ongoing sustainability of those high prices was only sustained by income from Melbourne or Sydney or wealth from Melbourne or Sydney. I see that same problem starting to creep in and impact more markets now. So, Kent, with this AI thing you're seeing in the US, can you is it an example of sort of a sort of a company? I mean, I think Westpac let twenty percent of their staff in Sydney go. Um, don't quote me on that. I just saw a headline and oh, I was not aware of that. Yeah, or was it? You know, like, and so I think, um, you know, obviously there is this. You know, the, the interesting thing is, is if this is cost reduction, right? So it's less bums on seat, but the company's still got the same revenue then isn't this just, you know, capitalism playing out, right? And, and isn't that wealth going to shift to bigger bonuses to the people who keep their jobs, um, you know, more talent? You know, you get this sectioning, you know, the inequality gets worse, you know, people who've got shares and investors make more money. So, you know, is this one of the issues you could see where, yeah, you got mass market, but it's going to also make inequality worse, which is actually going to drive prices um, even worse that way? I think it, it would have uh, an interesting impact in terms of the wealth gap. I think it will spiral even further. Um, you know, yes, GDP per capita uh, may well go up as a measure of the overall economy, um, but we're going to find some pretty significant societal problems start to emerge. Universal basic income being tested all over all over the world right now. And you look at the type of money they're handing over. It's like, well, what's that going to pay for three days' rent? So, you know, I just can't see how the universal basic income model is going to stack up in a country that has such an expensive housing market. Won't work for us. So, you know, I don't, I don't have the answer. I'm just identifying some of these. Some of the data sets are going to be very interesting to watch, which is my domain. So what type of, I mean, is there like a hit list of, of job types or industry types that are sort of top of the list here? Yeah, the, the, I um I I did a bit of an investigation on it, and I you know where do, where do you think I went? I went to ChatGPT for it, um. But you know, by and large, um, there's there's been a few white papers where it's identified where its capacity or capability is best, um. And you know the the typical data analysts and the stuff, some of the stuff that I do, if I worked for a company doing what I do, I think I'd be under threat. If you work for yourself, it's probably could be a flip side, whereas my capacity to produce stuff uh, increases. So, you know, a lot of your data analyst type roles, you know, a lot of your general admin roles. Um, and then where it could go is going to be rather fascinating. So, uh, you know, I think the safest ones are going to be your trades and, you you know, you're, you're on, on the ground type trades and farms and agriculture and, and whatnot, pretty safe for now. But do you reckon agriculture is, Kent, while you're there? No, that's what I, I tried to... Well, I think, think it might... Because there's some vertical farming technologies, for example, that are, are totally adopting robots now. So in the UK, for example, um, strawberry farms, vertical strawberry farms being done by ro robotics and one or two people, a whole massive output, whole you know, farm. So 
I think it's only a matter of time. And, you know, you think about it, how much trouble, I know we're jumping around a fair bit, but this is going to, I think it's going to impact most industries. The question more is, who is it going to impact first? And where are those people to bring it back to the real estate argument? And my concern is that you've got a real estate market that's, I'm going to, I'll throw out that word bubble, because I don't know if we've mentioned before, but when you start to look at it in context, is, is are these prices sustainable long term? And if the answer is no, and all it's going to take is one little pinprick, then could you argue that a lot of our markets are in a bubble? And and I think we, we may be at that risk, uh, and we may start to call it that uh, if unemployment has to go up. And, you know, that's going to be the big driver. Yeah, and I think that's where the, you know, the talent that we have to keep importing, right, you know, to to people who aren't in the market, right, they want homes, et cetera, and if they come here and they're earning incomes and they can borrow money, ultimately, if that didn't exist, right, then um, you would have to argue that it's down to people who, you know, there's only a pent-up demand in the market. What we're doing is we creep on creating more demand, but keep on... You know, and then also there's a lack of supply because, you know, people are staying in their homes for longer and, you know, people are, you know, that's that's also supporting the market, right? So if there was this sort of mass exodus out of the market. So, yeah, there's a, it's it's, it's obviously not just a demand thing we've got to talk about. It's also people need to live somewhere, right? And they, you know, they- That's yeah. the problem. And, and the affordability metric highlights how much the, it, it, I believe, as a system is failing because- uh, if if supply was was not constrained at the moment, it's grossly constrained. It's you know the limitation, the output levels are very very low, record lows, uh, builders going under, etc. So you you could could well argue that we're in that position where some of those market mechanisms are failing. And you know if the, if the market was truly operating, you know we we wouldn't have the the, the supply problems. But there's been breakdowns in the market, you know, and so I think. With the supply issues, it's propping up prices. People telling me that FOMO's creeping back in. You know, I spoke to a buyer's oh, agent yeah, this morning it. that was in and around Sydney saying, hang on a minute, I could, he could sense FOMO and people paying two or three hundred K. And he was mentioning a lot of the buyer's agents are propping up prices in a very big way. So, you know, he believes that there's some overbidding <laughs> <laughs> from, from a lot of the BAs. Uh. So, you know, at a very vulnerable time, it seems a bit crazy. That is a, a obviously a concern, and you know I've said it many, many times. There's buyers agents, and then there's buyers agents, and some buyers agents are very transactional in their approach, and they don't have good processes around due diligence and pricing. And we're certainly seeing it. Well, obviously, on the ground in Sydney, we're certainly seeing big numbers at open houses, and the Sydney auction clearance rates. Uh, for some months now have been very strong in in hot market territory, definitely in seller's market. Stock levels have been, um, you know, lower than five-year averages for some time. And the other metric that we track is the withdraw the percentage of properties that are withdrawn from auctions. So you you that's for me is a marker of confidence in the seller and the agent that they're going to get their price right. And we've seen that trending downwards as well um, over the same period of time. So you got the clearance rates going up, you've got the, the withdrawn listings going down, and you've got listings numbers sitting. They bounce around because they're very seasonal, you know, what I mean? in the sense that you've got Easter and you've got a June long weekend and you've got you've got various, um, you know, school holidays, et cetera, that will mess with listings numbers. But so that's why looking at the five-year um, averages are really great. And, you know, we're significantly lower, like 20 to 30% in some areas um, over long-term trends. So when you've got those things combining, of course you're going to get FOMO because people still – want to buy a home and there's less around and there's more people around and, um, you know, they're going to fight over it. It's interesting to know how sustainable that would be if listings levels were at normal at normal levels. Inventory levels look great. If you say, if I only put, if I put my goggles on, which is all my go-to measure is inventory and vacancy rates, the yeah. markets look fantastic. They look strong and robust. My question is, as a result of some of these looming difficulties and you know, the jobs market specifically, AI having an impact, where is it going to have an impact? And I believe it's going to have the greatest impact on those markets where I can't afford, you know, I don't have much more, I don't have a buffer on my mortgage, for example, it's unaffordable and there's not going to be a, a, a massive volume of people to up, you know, to take my, 
my property that say currently 15 or 16 years times average household income. So it's going to be some interesting challenges. Yeah, but is part of your metric then the proportion of properties in the area that is that uh, has a mortgage? Because if you could say unaffordable suburbs like Mossman, for instance, I would imagine Mossman has quite a small proportion of properties that are mortgaged, right? The, a lot of these blue chips are, yeah, they're 35, 40, 45%. Some of these absolute blue chip suburbs, you almost write them out of the, the discussion because the-, the, 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 the Well, they're unaffordable, out- but are they at risk? Yeah, they're, so they're, they're right out of it. So you take those, because what I look at is I look at owned outright as one of my key pillars, and that instantly categorizes it and says, is this going to be a stable market irrespective? So owned outright is my first one. Then I go to affordability. So that's kind of almost counters that affordability argument. Uh, then I look at rental tenure to say not too many, not too, because too many rentals remember when covid kicked in and we had all that exodus of renters from in and around the universities specifically where the markets had too many renters those markets became quite volatile and the rental market did have a knock-on effect to the to the purchase market uh, as well so i look at that and then i look at socioeconomic index so that kind of my four pillars uh, at a at a suburb level uh, and then at that macro level above that where i'm kind of looking holistically i'm saying well uh, is there good quality transport is there health is the job are the jobs market you know so you're kind of looking at these foundation things and then once you get through those kind of i got four pillars at the region level four pillars at the suburb level then you've got your market fundamentals and what i've been doing for a long time is always kind of judging or starting with the market fundamentals of inventory or vacancy rates and i think i'm looking back now saying i don't know if that was the optimal approach i think the market stuff does vary but those other fundamental things must kind of come first yeah i think you're, i think you're definitely on the money here kent so where those multiple of incomes where it's um, becoming potential, where it looks potentially unaffordable today or it's really expensive today, um, but there's unlikely to be a lot of income growth and there's potentially issues with unemployment in the future. Um, and they're not sort of the forever home suburbs, right, where people are really upgrading into it. So people have gone there because it's a provides a housing solution that's you know, pretty good. I would say they're in a bit of a trouble, right? Because you, if you don't see income growth, you don't see, and you see a bit of unemployment, etc. Um, people won't be able to justify current prices and keep on pu- pushing them up because there's just not the income there to do it, right? There's not the confidence around employment. You know, when you're talking more the upper end, though, you know, if, for example, there is a, um, yeah, you know, also people went unemployment and worried about rates. Also, people sit on their hands. What's happened the last three months? Um, absolutely, buyers become more picky, but. Uh, the, the concerns around sort of FOMO in the market, we don't really see that. I mean, like the issue, the only time we get it is because our purchases are massively down, right? Like our pre-approval list is huge, right? We, we touch base with them and everyone's looking, everyone can't find anything. Um, and when they send us things, they're sending us two lemons, right? And they say, look at these two properties. And I'm like, they're both average. They're both not great, right? Um, and so... I would say that, you know, most, and if anything, in the last few weeks, buyers are even less, are more picky, because why would you be more um, less picky when rates are up higher, right? But also sellers are more likely not to sell, right? If, you know, if you were thinking about selling in spring this year, are you less likely or more likely to sell now? You'd be less likely because you go, well, I don't want to upgrade in this environment under higher interest rates. I don't know what I'm going to get for my price. You know, the negative news is starting to freak in again. So I don't know. I, I think that that FOMO is there, but I think it's really worrying because I think they're FOMO on poor assets. Um, you know, you look at the domain and the the real estate results on the weekend. Some of the properties and the prices they're getting um, are just average properties, um, and so that's a big concern. So, but that's the point, Chris. Your your clients are bringing you these lemons, and you're going, "Don't buy that," and they don't go, they don't buy it. Whereas the average buyer who's worried that they're going to get priced out, worried prices are rising in a rising interest rate environment, they're going to go for the lemon. That's why lemons are selling. You know, it's mm. why, you know, why there's a buyer for every lemon at the moment and and why it's counter to what you would imagine because buyers don't understand, they don't have a helicopter view of the market because they're not in it day in, day out. They come in it in the in the market in which 
the, the conditions at the time at which they're looking and they believe that to be the property market. And I can tell you that universally that one complaint every single buyer always has, doesn't matter when they're in the market, whether there's lots of stock or no stock, is that there's no stock. That is the, the one thing every single buyer always says, doesn't matter when they're in the market, right? And so it's like it's a universal truth and it's like the human condition of property inspections and but they don't know the difference between a good market and a bad market you know and so this is meant to have been a buyer's market it certainly in sydney at any rate has led the charge you know uh, sydney led the charge in terms of the price falls at the beginning of 2022 it's leading the charge in terms of the price gains in 2023 and and we've just got this sort of seesaw market. Um, I've got this sort of theory that, that it, the market is like a seesaw. It's basically everyone's crowded down one end and that's sort of, sort of down and then a few start moving and then others start watching other people moving and then it's all, all of a sudden the FOMO kicks in and they all run to the other end of the seesaw and tip, it becomes a seller's market. Then they do it all again at the other end, they run up the middle of the seesaw and back they go down, tip. It becomes a buyer's market. And it seems to be that we've got this absolute, this is knee-jerking from one condition to another, despite the fact that we've got, you know, rising, but despite all these macro environmental conditions, <laughs> we've got this crazy behaviour, which is purely based on sentiment. There is yeah. a little bit of FOMO, I would say, though, with, um, so I'm just looking through some of our pre-approvals, right? And, um, you know, there is a bit of concern with people because they're, Borrowing capacities are way down, right? Um, and you know they're just trying yeah. to get into the housing market, or they're just trying to get a home. Like there's, they've got a family, um, and they're looking at the market. It's so tight, right? Like where they want to yep. be and what their budget is, etc. So, and then you know you got before their pre-approval yeah, for lapses. That's, that's happening, right? Because a couple more wage increases. That that five percent reduction is quite a lot. That's fifty, hundred grand. You know, for example, on their purchase price, etc. So there is a bit of FOMO for them, and and that's it's a really tough situation because they're trying to buy in this short window with a you know tight capacity, um, and they're trying to get the best asset because they're worried that if they miss it, right? If the prices for go up five or ten percent, and their borrowing capacities don't go up. Well, now they're potentially not having to move locations, et cetera. So there is a bit of that. There was a bit of FOMA with the stamp duty under 1.5 in Sydney as well. Um, we absolutely saw some, you know, results there where clients just went for it because they knew they weren't paying stamp duty, whether it was a great idea or not. It's a different thing. Um, but, yeah, I, but I think you're right around the affordability thing. I think that is a real worry. If, if employment um, does, you know, unemployment does increase, if wage increases don't come in, um, then property looks expensive, right? Especially if interest rates stay high. Um, and, you know, you could wipe out a lot of growth if there's no income growth. Um, but I would argue, though, that, you know, that the, the, the capitalism will just make inequality worse. And you'll see that supply really dries up in the more affluent areas. And that, that some people in that new world will be doing well financially. And they'll be the ones transacting in the market. And so you, what you'll see is this disconnection, this flight to quality over the longer term where some properties are going up because they tick all the boxes for people who really want to buy a lifestyle and some properties are, are going sideways because it's really driven by affordability due to incomes. And um, that's that sort of, yeah, the irony of that world. Yeah, I think um, the, with the, those, the elite markets too, I, I think I'm going to be watching fractional investment with, with a bit of interest there because... It will mean you know, if that really starts to get a roll on, it does mean that people don't have to select a a suboptimal location. They can go into a premium location, but they're doing it with others, and it can be owner occupied or investor as well. That will be interesting because I think to your point, um, there's a number of these areas that are true blue chip. There's high volume of owned outright, and a lot of these business owners, you know, capitalists as such. Are going to benefit from this, you know, increase in uh, in productivity as a result of AI, and you know, they enjoy the spoils of these extra profits. So it kind of backs up the argument for a lot of those who could access, say, say some of these um, fractional investment models that could suddenly make that that loan serviceable because they only own fifty or sixty percent of the equity of that property. It's an interesting space we're in, isn't it? Because of course. You know, we, we've often talked about is the um, property market too big to fail in Australia? We've really put a lot of eggs in this basket. Mm -hmm. 
as a country. I love that statement. That you was know. from the and lady from CoreLogic to coin that phrase, wasn't it? Eliza Rowan, yes. And that just resonated. That was a smart statement. Yeah. She's a very smart cookie. In fact, we need to get it back on. Um, she should be on our target list. Chris and I are going on holidays at different times, but it basically means we've we've pre-recorded a whole bunch of these episodes so we can cover off our holiday period. Um, here we are talking about affordability and how tough it's going to be for some people. We're getting in. This is FOMO. We're getting in while we can. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, Eliza, if you're listening to this, we're putting a call out. I think we need to get you back. So where do we go with all this, Kent? Um, you're sort of rethinking affordability or unaffordability, I guess, as a as a, a warning. A key metric. Um, a key metric. In certain areas. Yeah. But but I know a lot of people go, well they so they'll say, oh there you go. See I've always said Sydney's Sydney's expensive market, so therefore the whole of Sydney is gonna fall. Um you know what I mean? That type of mentality a lot of people have towards gross sweeping statements based on a little bit of data. How are we gonna? How how do we make sensible decisions around this? So we what what you know because it's going to be. We already talked about some of our bigger blue chip established markets, such as the Mossman's of the world. Um, they're not that susceptible to this because they don't have the same vulnerability points that uh, other suburbs are going to have. So how do we detect those suburbs? I mean, what are some of the telltale signs? Well, yeah, the question more is, or who who are who are we answering this for? So let's just pick the cohort of, say, investors. If you're an investor, how do you navigate this? And I would argue that you'd, you'd probably want to look at some of the areas that have the fundamentals, such as, you know, I like the big hospital, you know, the big the big rated hospital. Uh, I like rail, you know, are you close to quality rail? Because that's a that's a cost of living opportunity. You know, in my view, if you're if you if you can do away, if you you're going to be forced out of your 10 year old car because it's unsafe and it's dirty uh, and you've got two options you know i have to buy the seventy thousand dollar tesla or catch a train you're probably going to go for the train but you need to live near the train so i think you know the transport then you want the retail and you want the job so you've got those kind of macro things so if answering this question for an investor you say okay have i am i ticking all those boxes in terms of the, the the region having some stability and some good things about it and then you go down to the suburb and you're looking for the things that make that suburb attractive such as is it affordable has it got a high volume of owner occupied so it, the suburb becomes stable as well and then you're just buying at the right price because you're looking at the market fundamentals so the question is you can navigate this minefield you just got to use your data very carefully and make your decisions wisely and just not follow the herd. I think one thing I would add in there is, is, is it affordable, as in can people afford to have a good life whilst living there? Um, is it desirable? You know, is it aspirational? Because the thing is that what I observe, it doesn't matter what creates the requirement for a ripple effect, right? So rising prices creates a ripple effect. Everyone knows about the ripple effect. They've got a desirable suburb that people get priced out of that becomes unaffordable. And then they go to the surrounding suburbs in search of more for their money or something for their money because they literally can't afford anything in the, in the unaffordable suburb. As prices start to fall again, what we see is this reverse ripple effect where people go back to that suburb, that desirable suburb, because they're like, oh, brilliant, I can now afford to buy there. And so it's always got this magnetic pull, you know, because it does have the lifestyle, it does have the type of homes, it does have the, that, that desirability, that aspirational um, aspect to it. Whereas those suburbs that people only went to because they couldn't afford a better suburb, well, why would you go there if you can't afford a better suburb? And so that's one of the things that, you know, I've always talked about with our investor clients and our own occupiers for that matter as well. It's like you you want those suburbs. You do not want to buy in a suburb where people only go to because it is affordable. If that's its only attraction, then, then that is very ephemeral and that can be easily re replaced by a better suburb that becomes more affordable as prices fall. So, so this is something, you know, that we all need to be very mindful of. And this is why I sort of, that's why I was early on in this conversation really pinpointing how are we going to define affordability? Because when investors chase these affordable locations is often when they're making big mistakes. Yeah. I think you've a really good point there, Veronica, around, um, 
you know, that you're right because ultimately if a suburb um, is desirable, it's that forever home suburb, right? Um, there's always people in no matter what market, even there's a lot of fear around recession right at the moment. But even if there was a recession, that doesn't mean everyone's had huge impacts to their income. Everyone's businesses are going under. You know, we saw that in COVID, right? Some industries were absolutely smashed. Some industries did really well, et cetera. So um, even if there was this, you know, higher interest rates, the GDP's falling, et cetera, right? There will still be people in that, that marketplace that need to upgrade, that want to upgrade to their forever home, right? And if they can get a sniff of moving out of this suburb that maybe they went because it was affordable, but then they can move into that aspirational, that lifestyle suburb, but they're doing well financially, well, they're in the marketplace, right? Because um, they see it as an opportunity. And so I think you're right. Like the, one of the things that cushion prices in bad times is when you've got a suburb that is a forever home because people don't leave. You know, they, they go, well, I want to stay here. I want to put the kids through education. I'm not just trying to live here for five years and then I'm going to upgrade with them. So that's what you see a lot in high density, for example. Um, but also when in tough times, the, you know, the stock really dries up because no one leaves. But also there's the opportunistic buyer comes in to support the market um, that would love to live in Paddington rather than Newtown, right? As an example, like as um, as an example. But and Newtown's a forever home as well. But um, yeah. <laughs> but this isn't just forever homes, Chris. I mean, this is certainly um, people at all stages of the property cycle. I mean, it, it's, it's you know, first home buyers, the same deal. It's like, oh, great. I don't have to take as big a hit, you know, to my list of compromises. I can, I can shave some of them off because I can now afford to buy in an area that I didn't think I could afford to buy in before. Or, you know, if I'm downsizing, the same yeah, deal. I can downsize yeah. and stay in my area rather than having to downsize and go into a cheaper area. So there, there's lots of different stages of life that people can benefit uh, from a falling market or a contracting market, if you want to call it that, because there are areas that will fall or contract more than others. Um, and there's, you know, I, I've said many times, you know, I've done case studies over the years. I've seen people that have made money in property in, in times when prices were falling. I've seen people lose money in times when prices were rising. So there's lots of individual decisions that need to be made, um, you know, that have to have to have respect for the fact that the property market is a, is a complicated beast. <laughs> but um, so I think, yeah, it's, it, this is a really interesting conversation. There's this nuance around affordability slash unaffordability and the, and the elasticity of prices and what's going to happen to the rental market, which I, I think might contract faster potentially than I may be wrong there but you know we'll wait and see I guess I can prove them right wrong than than the sales market potentially because you know we do have continued demand um for uh rental property we do have a shortage but also if you've got a rental if you've got an investment property you don't want it to sit there vacant for very long so you're going to have to respond to the market whereas when you are deciding whether to sell a property or not unless you are under financial pressure you have the luxury of deciding no i'm not going to choose to sell in this time so therefore the impact on rentals will be i think probably more immediately felt for those reasons what we're seeing in the rental market is a lot of first-home buyers who are, um, you know, renters, right? You know, that's what they're, they're looking to enter the market. They can't because of their borrowing capacity or their savings, they can't get into a home, right? So they're almost giving up on home ownership, um, especially if they're getting to this sort of family stage because they go, look, I can't um, get something that suits me. And the temptation is, I stopped the client doing this this morning, um, is to go and buy an investment property. So they, they are a, a Sydney family, you know, they're on a few hundred thousand a year, they've got a couple hundred grand in savings, but they want to live in the inner west. But their budget, right, is, you know, low one millions, right? And they if they if they made some compromises that A looked at bigger apartments and B maybe changed their suburbs, they could make it happen from a housing point of view. But what they wanted to do today is go and buy an investment property because they didn't want to um, you know, they didn't want to make that compromise. Well they 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 just didn't they just thought that maybe they could make just as much money that way. And the temptation is to do that, right? So what? But what? as soon as they make that decision to buy an investment property, what they've done is they've pigeonholed themselves into the rental market, right? Um, because they, they the only way to get out of the rental market is to sell the investment property 
and then to take the gains and then go back into the market, et cetera, which is a, that's five, seven years' time potentially till they. Well, they also have to that. pay tax on that gain at that Exactly. Point. And it's very hard to outperform, you know, in the, the Sydney market, yeah. right? For example. So that's what we were in that situation. So I think that's what's happening as well. Is I think that a lot of people are forced into renting and they, they want to get out, but then they can't afford to, to buy in the capital city. And so they go and invest their money elsewhere and create investment properties in Southeast Queensland, right? But in Sydney, for example, there, there's not enough, um, you know, so that's creating a problem with, you know, that rental crisis, right? Where these people should be homeowners, but they're not because they can't afford to mm. buy, and, but they're creating rental stress. Or they can't afford to buy in the suburb that they want um, because, you know, there's a plenty there's plenty of suburbs on good quality rail transport in and around Sydney that are very affordable, you know? And you're talking a family that, say, got 150K household income plus, um, I could list down half a dozen suburbs offering three-bedroom units that would be extremely affordable for that couple with a kid using it as a stepping stone like we all did. So, you know, a bit of an expectation adjustment maybe. We do discuss this in Home Buyer Academy, of course, for first home buyers, and, and we actually have a, a workshop called a stepping stone strategy uh, tutorial because, you know, it is a – it, it, the reality is most first home buyers are not going to buy their forever home straight off the bat. Um, I can put the link in the show notes if anyone's interested in the tutorial. Um, but you're not going to buy your first home, you know, sorry, your forever home straight off the bat. So therefore you have to think, okay, this first property I'm buying has to do a, he a hell of a lot of heavy lifting to get me up that ladder, leverage me, leapfrog some rungs up that ladder as my metaphor is going. Um, for when I'm ready for an upgrade. And a lot of a lot of people trap themselves in that first property because they don't buy with that longer lens, you know. So it's got to serve me now, yep, it's got to serve me for a period of time, but it's also got to do a capital growth job. And it can't help it can't create a problem where it's helping me, it's holding me back. It's got a it's got a very important job to do. So that's the first thing. And then the other option obviously is rent vesting. And so it's what you're talking about there, Chris, and some people do do that too quickly and they hamstring themselves and they never get into their own home because for whatever decisions, whatever choices, they have locked themselves into an investment property that doesn't do the same thing. Because for an, for an investment property to work as a stepping stone, it's got to outperform even more because you've got to compensate for the fact that you have to pay tax when you sell it. So it makes it even more complicated. And so this is what a lot of first home buyers have sort of got to have that longer lens rather than just get in the market, get in the market. I just need to get in the market. No, you do not. You need to get in the market with the right sort of asset that's going to help you in your longer term journey. And so that is a, a tough one. There are certain people that rent vesting is a great option for. And I think if you are going to have a, a you know, you know that you're going to have a lot of more income in coming years. If you're in one of those careers, it really does ramp up in terms of its um, earning capacity. Um, or perhaps you've got little children now and you know that, you know, three years time, they're going to be in school and you're going to be back working or whatever it is, whatever it is that's going to give you that that significant enough boost to your income that's going to mean you can keep that property and then buy a home to live in, you know, that's somebody that might work for the rent vesting strategy, but you've got to be very careful that you don't shoot yourself in the foot by by jumping in and buying now anything just to get on the ladder because it's pretty unforgiving if you make a mistake first time into the market. And, and you know, if you're stuck renting in one of these kind of 1.2% vacancy rate suburbs, what an awful situation because, you know, chances are you could be turfed every two or three years. And, you know, so you've got, yeah, a, young kid, you've got a young kid. I'd, I'd rather go buy the three-bedroom unit down at Penshurst, thanks very much. So would I because you might end up having to rent it anyway and I'd rather, <laughs> rather own it rather than it was it was one kid that just started school another kid that's you know two three you know at daycare you know and um you know that's the reality right if if this you know they did go down this rent vesta strategy and they didn't think through their long-term housing needs then absolutely you got issues mm -hmm. with school zones you've got issues with getting kicked out you've got issues with um yeah maybe they're mm -hmm. making some money on the investment property but you know their rents are going up right because they need a bigger place they don't just need a, a two-bed apartment and then they want to rent three-bed apartments or three houses and you know, then they end up maybe making those compromises down the line because they can't afford to rent in those suburbs they really want to live in now, right? And so I think it is a, it's a really big discussion that you've got to be really careful, you know, just buying an investment property to try to get yourself out of that 
home ownership journey when there's a mm. lot of challenges with that. So, short-term uh, pain, longer-term yeah. pain. So, Ken, I'm really interested to talk about this AI sort of <laughs> stuff next month. So, will that be ready for for a convo? I'll be creating a press release um, based on the suburbs that I believe will be hardest hit um, by uh, AI and job losses, um, and it will be um, mashed up with. Um, mark property market information obviously so i'll bring it back to the real estate market so you know the fundamentals will be that it's got a high proportion of people in job categories that are the ones most likely to be impacted soon um and then then it's going to be overlaid and fil- the data filtered out to look for certain suburbs that are, have a lack of affordability so um uh, watch out for it. It'll be a, a top 20 list that'll go out as a press release and we'll pull that apart next um, next podcast. Kent's turning into the Grim Reaper. All right, well, we will... Uh... <laughs> I'm the one using ChatGPT. I'm part of the problem, right? I'm loving it. I'm using it too. I have to tell you that like, I'm using it to create blogs. I don't ask it to write the blog for me. I hit it with, you know, my... F- five key you know salient points and and it just saves crafting the 600 words out of what you know my insights so i'm i'm taught what i do i give it a style of writing i say copy this style yes and then i structure up my spreadsheet and i've got all the columns and all the data points that i want so it's a data table that i copy and import in and i tell it to write a story in that style but using only my data don't run off to the internet to pull down random data yeah. sets only use my data points and it is it is killing it amazing Interesting. But that's a, you know, and this is a thing I think you have to be a subject matter expert to know whether something that you've got out of chat GPT is accurate or not, because it lies convincingly. And, and I've, I've thought this is interesting. I'll get, I played around with it. I was horrified by what, what came back at me. And I thought, well, garbage in, garbage out. But when, when, when I give it what I want and it's really just saving writing time for me, it's, it's been great. But it lies with confidence. It's just. Lies convincingly. (laughs) Yes. It looks you in the eyes and and lies. No, believe me. Believe me. But please, yeah. Trust me. I'm I'm a bot. (laughs) So, um, yes, it was surprising to hear in the US so many jobs, so many jobs being shedded so quickly. So, you know, I've got to say that that the scary bit here is what industries um, might follow suit. All right. Well, that's for our next Suburb Trends episode. It'll be in a couple of months. And, uh, yeah, we look forward to that. We shall sit on the edge of our seats. Thank you very much, Kent. It's been a great chat. Thank you. Thank you, Kent. If you have a question that you'd like us to answer in an upcoming Q&A episode, you can send us a voicemail or written question via the website, theelephantintheroom.com.au, or you can email us directly at questions at theelephantintheroom.com.au. If you like what you're hearing, please share this episode with others you feel would benefit. And while you're at it, why not leave us an iTunes review? Five stars would be great. I know that sounds a bit cringy, but we have it on good authority that every review helps make it easier for other people to find out about us and hear what our amazing guests have to say.